I'm going to pray, and we'll get going. Jesus, just um, ask that you would calm our hearts now, that you would um, focus, myself included, that you would, would just focus this time before us, that uh, we would be here to draw closer to you, God, because we know that you came to earth to be closer to us. And so we just ask that this time would be anointed. I ask for the ability to teach, pray for those, including myself here, and our ability to learn that this would not just be a speech, that this would actually be a sermon, that, that Holy Spirit, you would actually take the words from your word, and embed them into our hearts. And so would you not allow us to, to leave here unchanged? Would you mature us as this book is imploring us to do? Would you push us a little bit? Would you um, continue this, this walk of faith um, until, you're, until Jesus, you return? And so, Jesus, we just ask that you be lifted up for your fame, for your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you may know, we're going through, as I said, First and Second Thessalonians um, the author is Paul, and he's writing back to a church that he didn't get to spend much time at. So if you know anything about church planting, generally a rule of thumb is that you stick around longer than a couple weeks to plant a church, yeah? Paul had no such luck with the church at Thessalonica. He was routed out of it, as he was in many places throughout his ministry, um, Scholars kind of disagree based on some biblical evidence. We don't know if it was like three weeks or three months. Some believe three weeks because there's a, a passage that talks about he was there for three Sabbaths. But then some people say, well, those Sabbaths were only counted as tithing Sabbaths. And so that was only once a month. So it might've been like three months. Regardless, three weeks to 12 weeks, not a lot of time to plant a church. Do we agree? I mean, we, we spend longer than that setting up church plant Facebook pages these days, right? Like getting everything ready, getting posters made, finding a space. Doing all sorts. Paul was in and then he was boosted out of that place fast. So he had concerns, rightfully so. He, he, he launched this new church, this young church that wasn't there for Jesus's public ministry. Paul never met Jesus in person during his um, public ministry, but Paul did have Jesus show up from heaven and smack him around a little bit as we talked about in the first chapter. And so there was this young church that was, that by all accounts, as we found out, thriving, but Paul still had concerns. It's a very human concern that folks would crumble in their faith when they're just beginning. It's such a tender time and it's so easy to get jaded long-term, yes, but maybe even more so when you've just begun. How many of you remember coming to Christ and then thinking, man, Christianity, maybe it was at church camp, maybe it was when you're young, maybe it was recently. You're like, man, it's Christianity thing and you're washed over and you feel good and then like something awful happens. You're like, what's the point really? Like if stuff, if just terrible crap's gonna keep happening, what's the point? And so Paul had this very human concern for the church at Thessalonica and we see here that he doesn't just simply hold what we're going to see and what I hope to kind of be one of the things that presses on us this chapter is that he doesn't just sit at a distance. And I, and I don't say this flagrantly, but he doesn't just pray for the situation. He actually does something about it. There, there is absolutely nothing wrong with prayer by any means. We're called to it. It's a calling on the Christian life. We cling to it. It is our lifeline to eternity. It is our lifeline to an active, breathing, living, risen king. But there is action involved in faith as well. 
there's action. You've heard us talk about it where someone says, look, I have faith in this chair. And then someone says, okay, well then have a seat. And you're like, no, I have faith in it. And like, all right, well sit down then. Right? That's the old example. Well, no, I see it's got four legs and it's got a cushion and a back. Everything seems, I got faith that that chair will hold me. And then James, the book of James is like, all right, show me, show me your faith. Well, just tell me about your faith. The world has a ton of faith in a lot of things and they talk about it, but show me. Have a seat, sit down. And it's one of the things that I love about Paul is that Paul doesn't just sit in piety, which prayer doesn't equal piety, but he doesn't just sit and say, well, I'm praying about it. I'll I'll pray about it. I'll, I'll hope for the best. I'll wish for the best. I'll, he actually takes action, but it's different in this sense because he can't go back there. He's been kicked out. He'll probably be killed if he goes back. And so I just want us to show, I just kind of want to set it up that he's got this very real faith as all pastors have. And what I'm going to implore you to think when the Bible says that you are a royal priesthood, don't abdicate all the concern on pastors. Well, you guys should be concerned about people's faith crumbling. The Bible says that we, look, if you're here, you profess a faith in Christ, you are a part of what the Bible declares to be a royal priesthood. Therefore, you don't get to just say, well, you guys have to have the concern for other people's faith. I don't. You should be concerned for mine, but I don't have to be concerned for anyone else's. And so though this is a pastor writing to a church that he's planted, you're like, I'm not a pastor, didn't plant a church. It is entirely applicable because the Bible says that you are a priest to your unsaved friends, to your saved friends, to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your co-students. And so he has a very real concern for the, the young budding faith of other folks and he takes action on it. And so we'll kind of talk about those two as we go through the second to shortest chapter in the book. And so we'll get into it. Um, We see in the previous chapter that Paul explained that he wanted to be with the Thessalonians during their time of trial and he couldn't be. And so the next best thing for Paul, since he could not be there in person and he was beginning to do a new work in Athens, And so he was then wrestling with this idea of how do I then still reach out? And it says this at the beginning of chapter three, it says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, so it was just burning in him and his companions, he said, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone. This is Paul and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. Paul says, Timothy will go. Paul does something. He could have very easily said, look, we got a whole new thing. We left, we got kicked out. We're done. Let's just pray for them. They're struggling. I'm concerned about them. Let's just pray for them. And then God will take over and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Prayer is a lifeline to be sure. God is sovereign to be sure, but he calls us to be a part of his work and to do things at times. It's not legalism. That's the gospel. It's very practical. It hits the ground and it chases people. And so what does Paul do? He says, I can't chase that church that I'm concerned for. He says, Timothy, go. As an apostle says, Timothy, go. I'm concerned about them, go. So this doesn't mean that you have to like, some of you are like maybe picking out a friend. Like, okay, so when I see someone, who, who should I send? No, it's you, by the way. It's you that is sent out. And it's you that then goes where there is concern, where there is perhaps issues of faith or or affliction as we're going to see. You don't get to abdicate that to pastors. This is a royal priesthood. 
So our job as pastors is to equip you, it says, unto ministry. It's not to do all the ministry. Do you know that? The pastor's role, and a lot of pastors actually, they treat it like that. So they do all the ministry and then they allow you to not do any ministry. And they don't challenge you to do ministry. Why? Because, well, this is what I do. This is my career. It's my calling. It's my paycheck. Therefore, I should do all the ministry. Our job is to equip you to minister to go out into the culture, into your workplace, into your schools, into your families, into your friend circles, and do on behalf of the gospel. And so he says he sent Timothy. And this means that Paul would be left alone in Athens. This, I mean, this, was a, this is an ancient civilization. He had just been kicked out of another area. He had traveled south and now he would find himself alone. It's not like us. Like we love alone time. In fact, we're the opposite in America today. We're like, we, I need more alone time. I, I need to go out on Mount Boney by myself and sit. It was, that wasn't like a luxury back then. To be alone could be a life challenge. It could be that you were kicked out. It could be that you were an outcast. It could be that you were on the outskirts of society. It could be life or death being alone for very long. And it was scary. It was a shaken time. This was the first century. There was persecution and Christianity was taking off. There were people being martyred. So Paul, it cost Paul something to send his companion out. So he would be alone in Athens, but he thought that it would be, as it says, it says that he thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone. There will be sacrifice when you take action on behalf of your faith, on behalf of others, for the sake of the gospel, there will be sacrifice. See, the thing is that Paul, if Paul had his way, he would actually want to go himself. So I'm like, oh, he didn't have to travel. It doesn't sound like a very bad deal. He wanted to, he had a pastor's heart for it, but he sacrificed that, found another way to take action, not just sit back and say, Timothy, let's just pray about it. He said, Timothy, go out and do something about it. We'll get more into that in a little bit. It says that he sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you. Paul wanted Timothy to primarily do these two things. And so as a royal priesthood, when you see concern, when you have concern and you go in unknowing what the situation is gonna be, a a friend has had is going through a struggle. Their, their parents are getting divorced. They're in a breakup situation. They're, they're coming out of something terrible. Their finances or career or school or grades, something is falling, affliction is falling. You believe that there is concern that their faith may crumble. Here's the two-part challenge for you is to establish, which means to firm, to provide a foundation and encourage See, Paul didn't send Timothy to go in and survey. He sent him in to serve. I say again, he didn't send Timothy out to survey. He sent him to serve. And so when there's concern, and and I'm gonna turn this around and challenge us later in the message to accept when people, other believers come in when they have concern as well. But when you're sent out, I want you to remember that you're called, we are called as a royal priesthood to establish and encourage folks in their faith. It's not super complicated. This is where 
you want to go in and help set the foundation. Now, the challenge in setting a foundation is, do you have one yourself? It's like, oh, I don't really have a foundation. So then you need to work on that because the Bible is saying, go out and help set a foundation for others as well that are struggling. And then what happens is when your foundation shakes, others come into you and help you reestablish your foundation. So remember that as you're reaching out, when you have concern for friends and family and their faith, remember that you're called to go in there and help reestablish that foundation to establish, not that you're setting their faith, but that you're reestablishing the foundation as a picture of the gospel and you're encouraging them. You're not just serving, hey, what's going on? Wow, cool, I'll pray for you, see you. But that you're encouraging them, you walk with them, you go out of your way to serve them, not just survey the situation. So he sends them out to encourage or to establish and to encourage. And they needed this. Why? It says in verse three, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Timothy, Timothy, Timothy was called to minister to them to help endure current hardship. So two things. Do you have friends in the faith that are going through hardship? Chances are yes, if you have more than one friend. And or are you currently going through hardship? Maybe not. Praise Jesus. Love those times. But as we've said before, it's, it's not a joke. It's entirely serious. If you're not in one now, just wait. I don't know if you know this, but it will come. Some of you are just coming out of one. You're like, finally, I'm done. Until the next. And so whether you have someone going through hardship or whether you yourself are going through hardship, whether you are going out to establish and encourage someone, or if tonight you need to finally let down your pride and allow others to come to your aid to establish and encourage you in your time. Because I'm the closed off guy. I think there's two types of people. There's people that run to other folks when there's hard times and then people that run away from folks when there's hard times. I run away. Anyone else? You don't have to raise your hand. I don't, I don't naturally run toward people. Some people do. Some people do. They run to Facebook and they just come in and start talking to me. I'm like, don't talk to me. Stop. I'll figure this out. Because I, I got enough pride for most of us combined. And so for me to allow people to come in and establish in times that I'm shaken and encourage me in times when my faith feels like or may seem to others to be crumbling, I have to allow this because this calling for us, this calling for Timothy as this extension of the Apostle Paul, this calling on all Christians as this extension of the church is to go in and endure hard times and to allow them to not be shaken and to encourage them to not be shaken by these afflictions. The ancient word in the Greek for shaken is this, this strange idea of, it's not strange, but it's this, have you ever seen a dog, have you seen a golden retriever just shaking its tail? It's like its body is just following its tail, not the other way around. And that's it. How many of you feel like you've come through, you've at some point been, if you haven't, then I'll tell you at some point will, it's gonna feel like this. 
It's going to feel like life and your faith are doing something so violent, so opposite, you can't even believe that there's a semblance between them. And Guzik says this, one of my, the commentators that I, I read frequently says, without a good understanding of the truth concerning the place of suffering in life of the believer, we are in great danger of being shaken in our faith. And he's going to go into this affliction. And we have to talk about this because he says these afflictions. And then he says something that no one wants to hear. It says appointed to this. And this is where entire Christian circles go berserk. And they start fighting and debating and writing books and taking stances and saying, I'm in this bucket and you're in that bucket. And I understand God's sovereignty and you don't understand God's sovereignty. And he's making this happen. And someone's saying, but what did I do wrong? And we go back and forth on this idea that these afflictions are appointed to us. Paul here is simply encouraging the Thessalonians to know that in their time of struggle, in your time of struggle, some of us here to varying degrees, I would say maybe all of us are in some sort of struggle right now. The Bible tells us that God is still in control. Though it feels like a Labrador shaking and his body is violently doing what it seems that he can't even it's not even attached to the tail. And it's just this life and this faith and it's just doing the berserk weird. It's just getting, so you need to understand. I need to understand that God is still in control, but suffering. Many, some Christians believe, I've got three points on this. Many or some Christians believe that we should only learn about God from study not from trials and tribulations. Is that you? Man, I learn about God from the Bible, but we're not willing to worry about him in trial, in affliction. Remember that God uses times of suffering to teach us. God uses time of suffering to teach us. Be more concerned with the fruit in the process. Be more concerned with what God has planned after than what it feels like when you're going through. Other places in the Bible uses athlete language. It uses athletics language. It says that all athletes have been trained by pain. I don't know if you know this. At some point, you're told to do something uncomfortable over and over and over until it breaks your body down so it can be broken or so that it can be built back up. And there's athletic language used in the Bible that says God uses this chastening, which is different than punishment. He uses this chastening. He allows suffering to happen because it will train us up stronger than if we were to never go through it. So remember that God uses times of suffering to teach. And if you're like, that's a capricious God, remember that the same was true for Jesus. That's a God I don't want to serve. That's a God that was surrendered and submitted to the exact same father. It says this in Hebrews 2, and we just came out of Hebrews, so it's fresh on my mind. I've got two verses. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things. So Jesus, all things, all things, everything is held together by him. It says in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation, the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. 
It says in Hebrews 5, 8, though he was a son, that's Jesus, yet he learned obedience. See, sometimes we forget that Jesus was fully man at the same time as he was fully God. We forget that the Bible says that he grew in the knowledge and the wisdom, the things of the Lord. So he grew, and then Hebrews 5, 8 says, though he was a son, capital S, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's what I love about Jesus, the perfect coach. I've said this a million times. I had a great high school soccer coach. Why? Because everything he asked us to do, he did with us or before us. We got to this crazy steep hill, hell week, the very first year that I played, co-captain. He says, all right, get a player about your size, weight. They're going to jump on your back. You're going to run up this hill. And he goes, Glesney, get on my back. It's awkward, but okay. <laughs> what up, Omar? <laughs> you know? And we ran, and then he ran up that hill. We'd go on 10, 12 mile death marches, death runs around the city after an hour practice. Guess who was there with us? He wasn't driving. I know some of you guys had that coach, like in the safety vehicle. Keep, keep it up. Nah, not Omar Salas. Everything he asked us to do, he did with us and before us. Jesus is a good coach. He says, you'll learn through suffering. So I'll show you. I'll learn through suffering. So I want you to press in wherever you are, whenever you're there, I want you to press into Christ when you're in suffering, remembering that he can minister to you. Why? Because unlike the Father, because unlike the Holy Spirit, Jesus knows what that feels like. Doesn't make him less or more God. It just means that that was his role as the Messiah was to come and to suffer and to serve and to die and to rise so that he could experience, about says he experienced everything that we did. That's why I want you specifically to call out his name in your time of suffering. Say, Jesus, give me your spirit to endure this suffering for your glory. He's been there. This is not the God of all the other fake, false religions that has no clue what it's like to be you. Jesus does. He knows what it's like to walk this earth, to be tempted in every way, though without sin, to be tempted in every way, to learn through suffering, to be chastened by God. That's a leader I want to follow. Not just because of what he said, but because of the way that he lived. And if you call yourself a Christian, which means little Christ, how dare we assume that we don't deserve suffering when Jesus himself went through suffering? We deserve it, but it's not punishment, which will be one of my points. So remember that God teaches us perseverance, obedience, how to comfort others and causes us to fall deeper in fellowship with Jesus through trials. Know that that's how God wants to redeem the trial you're in or will come into. So number one, many Christians believe we should only learn about God from study rather than suffering. The Bible doesn't allow it because Jesus suffered and learned. Two, many Christians believe that only suffering should come in the form of persecution. Some believe that we should only have an interaction with suffering via strictly the world. Don't get me wrong. Suffering comes from the world. And there are two types of persecution. One is overt and one is covert. In America, we're beginning to see the rumblings of covert persecution. We're not overt, okay? You all walked in here freely. It's on a website right now that we're doing a Bible study. Okay. I've told you I've gone to the catacombs under Rome. 
where they were, the hallways were lined with dead bodies as the church met. Why? Because that was overt persecution, death by sword for faith. We're not there yet, but we see covert persecution. You see the snickering, you see the employment issues, you see the news, you see the badgering, you see the person that doesn't want to make a cake for someone because they disagree with them on moral grounds. And you start to see this rumbling of covert persecution. It's not overt. Some Christians believe that we should only encounter suffering in the form of persecution. Just know that the two ancient Greek words used to translate the concept of suffering, neither of them are used exclusively in regard to persecution. Suffering can be used by God, but suffering, I'm here to tell you, suffering is not punishment from God. Proper understanding of God's sovereignty is that he allows all things to happen, but he does not cause all things to happen. I need you to know that. I need you to, to think about that. I need you to wrestle with that. I don't need us to necessarily understand exactly how it all works. But the Bible is clear that Jesus on the cross suffered one final punishment for all sins. Therefore, God is no longer punishing you for your sin. If Jesus' sacrifice was all atoning, God doesn't have any more punishment for you. But does he allow suffering in a world broken by sin? Yes. Does that make sense? I will stop and take questions at this point if it doesn't. Because I can't stand to go through life with more Christians that think God is still doling out direct punishment to them because they don't realize it, they don't mean it, but it nullifies the cross. God is not punishing you for your sin. Bible says sin will find you out, that he chastens those he loves, he trains them up for things in the future, and he allows suffering. But dear Christian, and if, even if you're not a Christian, I need you to know the gospel states that one man the God-man took all punishment for all time. That's why the Old Testament looks very different than the New Testament. People are like, oh, did you change the rules? No, God did. I'm super stoked about it. God's not angry anymore. He poured out all his wrath on Jesus. It's done, it's complete. But you need to know that we still have suffering. So some Christians believe that we can only learn about God from study rather than suffering. It's not true. Many Christians believe that only suffering should encounter in the form of persecution. It's not true. And as I said, this, my third point, I got ahead of myself. It says many Christians believe suffering means God is angry with them and or punishing them. God's not angry with you. Suffering exists, yes. It's the same thing with my kid. I I was playing soccer with my kid in the backyard yesterday. I punted that ball. He goes running, he hits, he hits something, sprinkler or something, eats it. He's in pain. Is he suddenly like, dad's mad at me? No, the world sucks. If you want something more eloquent than that, you got to talk to another pastor. The world sucks. Y'all know it, no one says it. Like, man, the world sucks. Don't say that in church though. The world sucks. Why? Because it's broken, it's fractured. Suffering occurs. It doesn't mean that dad's angry with you. So we can't confuse those two. So he says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. Look, I, I understand it's tough to be a, just don't be shaken in the afflictions. I get shaken in my afflictions. I confess to you during Hebrews that I didn't want to be there a couple weeks. Totally shaken. But what's happening here is that he's sending out someone to encourage them while they're shaking. And I'm going to implore you to allow people to come in when you're shaken, to go out when others are shaken to establish and encourage, but to allow other believers 
to come into your life to establish and encourage you when you're shaken. And he says this in verse four, he says, for in fact, we told you before we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. <laughs> and I love how he says that. And you know, <laughs> like, I think Paul talks like me sometimes. Like, look, I wasn't there long, but I told you this was gonna happen. You know, right? I, I think Paul was a little sassy at least, okay? He was little, I think history proves that. I think he was sassy with it too. But, but keep in mind, Paul had, had only been there three weeks, maybe 12 weeks. And guess what this church, he's saying, look, you already knew one thing. Uh, he probably taught him quite a bit. He planted this church. It was certain. He's like, look, I told you it was coming, right? I, I, I told you that suffering was gonna be a part of this. Let's say it was three weeks. Like first three sermons, he was already to the suffering part. A good pastor promises you what Jesus himself promises us. John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Jesus says, as they persecuted me, so too will they persecute you. As I learned obedience through suffering through this world, so too will you learn obedience through suffering in this world. And he said, look, Paul's like, look, I told you, you, you knew because he was a good pastor. He promised them what Jesus promises us. That's our role. I don't get to make up new promises or subtract from the ones that are already given. If you, if you don't want a church that tells you suffering is coming and equips you to walk through it, you want a truly pathetic version of the gospel. It's coming. And like our senior pastor Rob says, he's like, Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. You don't, it's gotta be in hot before it comes out. And that's when you see, and Paul's poking at their maturity here. And that's one of those indicators. When suffering comes, where do you go? When, when you lose the job, when you lose the grades, when you lose status, when you lose a relationship, when your folks get divorced or your, your friends move away or when something, when you're shaken in some way, shape or form, do you run toward Jesus? Do you run into his arms? Do you run toward Christian fellowship? Do you run toward the church, which is the extended ministry of Jesus today? Do you run into that or do you run away? I want to run away. But God chastens me and says, you don't have that luxury. That's not what I've called you to do. And I'll tell you this, one of the best ways to get through suffering is to serve. One of the most dramatic points in my faith is when my wife and I lost our first baby. Had Ethan, had a miscarriage, broken, broken. Picked my wife up off the floor in our living room. Went back to our room prayed. I don't pray that much. I did that night. Just being real with you. I don't pray that much. I talk to God a lot, but I, I'm not, I'm not, not good. I'm not disciplined in, in the routine of prayer. Ran to church, ran to Rob right up there in that office. You know what my senior pastor had the audacity to tell me to do? Like, Mark, you should really start serving people now in this time. And it was the best thing. The world will not tell you that. Facebook will not tell you that. Psychologists will not tell you. You need you time. You need alone time. You need to get away. 
calling on us is to go in, not run away. Rob said, start serving other people. Use this time to serve. It got us out of our death spiral so much faster than dwelling it ever could have. I know times are hard. But that spark of maturity says, I'm going to press into others when things are terrible for me. You serve your way out of suffering. You don't consume. Does that make sense? And so he says, look, suffering's coming. He says, just as it happened and you know. He's like, look, I wasn't there long, but I taught you that. And then it says, for this reason, verse five, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Pastor Paul could barely endure the thought of that faith community in Thessalonica crumbling during suffering. He could barely, he couldn't endure it any longer. And so he sent Timothy to serve. He took action. And if Paul could have, you best be sure he would have gone right back in himself. And so the call for us, when we see, when we have concern about others and the call for us, when there is rightful concern about our own is to go in, is to press into the faith community and serve them and allow that faith community to press into us and serve us. We like the second one a lot. We like to be served, but to press in and serve when we see concern for others, prayer is great. You should be praying on your way to see them. Got it? But you need to be on your way to see them. Do you have that friend right now? Do you have that Christian Friend, you have someone that's, that's struggling in their faith right now that's, that's clearly in a, in a time of turmoil. Can you go in and help establish? Can you go in and encourage? The Bible says, if you don't know how, ask and he'll give you the words. And sometimes he'll just tell you to not say anything. It's to go in there and be alongside someone when they're enduring suffering and to remind them that in this time, that Jesus learned things by suffering. Therefore, we can all learn things by suffering and that we should press into him who can teach us about enduring things through suffering. Think of that person, whoever comes to mind. Is someone in your circle, in your faith circle, a Christian, struggling right now? What can you do this week? Super practical. What can you do this week? Don't be annoying. Like, don't show up at 4.30 in the morning. I got bagels, right? (laughs) Bagels and encouragement, here we go. Like, be, be normal, Christian, okay? Like we come with an abnormal message, but we can be normal, okay? But encourage, establish in the time of suffering. And, and as I said, in the inverse, maybe you just need to tell someone that you're struggling. You just need to allow it. It's like, well, they should just know. Maybe they don't. Wouldn't it be nicer if someone just came up and said, hey, I'm struggling right now, can we talk? Maybe we need, Maybe you need to do that with other Christians and allow the faith community to establish and encourage you. Make sense? Super practical. That's what I like about the Bible. And he says, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you. And he's talking about Satan. Temptation is not a sin. I want you to remember that. Temptation is not a sin. It says that Jesus was tempted in every way yet without sin. But temptation is the line you stand on. 
And the step beyond that is what breeds sin. Jesus was tempted in every way. This blows my mind. People don't want to talk about it because it gets awkward. Jesus was tempted to think lustfully about a woman, gentlemen. Jesus was tempted, though he never did. Though it was never wrong, it it was never sin in his heart. He stood at that line. He was tempted in anger. We, he, we see times where his anger was righteous. And, and you got to believe that he was tempted to be angry, but then did not cross that line. There, there is righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. In every temptation you've faced on, for this entire life, I want you to remember, I spoke at the college group one time, just, but they wanted me to talk about like, how do you stay pure? I'm like, forget that. That's nonsense. This is a gospel. We're not pure. But here's the deal. Like when you step up on that line, I want you to know, it's not like, like, hey God, what do I do? It's that he's standing right there saying, I've been here before. You don't look back, hey God, what should I do up here? About to think about her that way. Jesus is like, I was there. So you haven't thought that practically about Jesus. Tempted in every way, anger, issues, lust, gossip. He stood right on that line, never crossed it. Unlike any God of any false religion, no God has stood on that line. Tempted, yet without sin. And we know that Satan is the one that does the tempting. He lies, he destroys, he loves tempting, especially in the time of suffering. What an opportune time. See, what he'll do is he'll, he'll lie to you. He'll get you all drummed up on yourself. He'll tempt you. You'll step over and then he'll bash you for doing it. It's a lose, lose, lose. He tried it with Jesus. You think he's not going to try it with you? He tried it before. He tried it with Jesus who created him. You think he's afraid to try it with you? To use that repeatedly against you? He stood before creator God. And it says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Did the Holy Spirit cause the devil to tempt him? No, but was he there sovereign and allow it to happen? You betcha. That was my Minnesota roots. You betcha. Okay. And so it says, then Jesus was led up. Sorry, you go intense to weird real fast, right? <laughs> it says, then Jesus was led up, by this, led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, by the way, 40 days, 40 nights, you're on the brink of death. This isn't like Jesus, like, where is he? Is he coming or what? Is he showing up? This is Jesus keeled over. I was a wrestler in high school. I used to go six days a week, basically on a bagel. Six days, like, don't come near me is awful. 40 days, this is body verge of death. 40 days and 40 nights he had fasted. Afterward, he was hungry. I love that. So what did he do after that? Well, for one, he was hungry, okay? Well, it's like Jesus was real or something. Yeah, he was hungry, okay? Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Could Jesus do it? You betcha, right? Of course, he made the stones. Of course, he can make it in whatever he wants. We saw miracles throughout his ministry, did we not? He could. Is there nothing, probably nothing more. What did it just say? So he's hungry. Is there probably nothing more that he wants right now than some carbs, right? Like some simple carbs, just bread, carbs, legit, forget the multi-grain, just white bread, right? That's what he wanted, Yes. Fully man, fully God, but fully man. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it is written. See where Jesus goes? 
Where does he go? He pulls out his sword, doesn't he? I'm not trying to be cheesy. I'm just looking at the life of Jesus. He's like unsheathes this thing. I'm not telling you, you have to read your Bible. If you're saved, you're saved. I'm telling you, if you're saved, you should probably want to read your Bible. Why? Don't you want to have some ammo? Anyone up for shooting back? Like, seriously. What did Jesus do? Pulled out a sword. Said, hey, yo, it's written. He didn't say, yo, I put that in. But he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says, this is, this is my meat. This is my steak, he says. He says, the content contained within this is what he fuels from. And I struggle with this because honestly, if I wasn't teaching week to week, I don't know how pathetic my Bible study would be. I don't. I've been teaching consistently for, I don't even know how long now, five, like every week for like five, six something years. I actually worry that if they're like, hey, you got like a couple months off. Like, I don't know how pathetic I would be at studying this. But we should want to, shouldn't we? Who wants ammo? Like you say, hey, there's a, there's a terrorist in that room. Do you want a gun? No, I'll be fine. I'll see what he's up to. No, you, you, Satan is a spiritual terrorist. He's a tempter. Grab some ammo. If the, if the warfare language gets you stirred up, all the better, right? It's not the only time they use militant language in the Bible. It's a lot. Because there's a spiritual warfare. It says, man, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, by, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. See God, and, then, and then Satan mocks him. He says, he shall have his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again. Don't you hate that when someone gives you like the same intro to their answer again? You're like, now you're just being snarky, right? Didn't I? Hey, look, I told you, I'll tell you again. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I shall give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. He's like, I'm done with this. cool of you get away for it is written you shall worship the lord your god and him only and you shall serve then the devil left him and behold the angels came and ministered to him jesus was tempted and he was enduring temptation he was enduring suffering through fasting and look what he did he allowed himself to be ministered to and like me you want to hold up say i'll get through this God himself did not take that stance when he was broken and tempted. He allowed angels who he created to minister to him. And folks like me, if you're anything like me, don't believe we can be ministered to in our time of suffering. It's that we have to get out of it ourselves and then we'll go back and then we'll get back on track and then we'll be good. And Jesus allowed himself to be ministered to. And I love this, 1 Corinthians, also written by Paul, 10, 13, says, no temptation has overtaken you. Because here's the big idea, God will always give you a way out. You stand on that line with Jesus right next to you, knowing exactly what it feels like. 
And do you know what he provides? If you but look at him, the Bible promises, promises he'll give you a way out. He doesn't force you to take it, but he will give you an opportunity. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. I'm gonna say that again because some of you don't believe it. Who, God, will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able Gentlemen, I know because I was there for many a years. If, you're, if, you, if you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, before you click that button on that computer late at night when no one's around, he will give you a way out. I was stooped in porn addiction. The majority of men will encounter at some point, some way, shape, or form, Experience the same. And ladies, the number for you is rising rapidly. He will give you a way out. How often do we take him up on that promise? And so he says, who will, allow, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. From this night forward, if you haven't heard this before, I'm responsible for declaring the truth. You are responsible for what you do with it. Every time you're tempted, you do have a choice. Jesus did have a choice. And he chose no. He did not do what he was not supposed to do. He did do what he was supposed to do. He chose holiness. He chose maturity because God never gave him anything that he could not escape from when he was tempted. Does that make sense? And he says that, he says, so I sent you to know your faith lest by means the tempter had tempted you and so Paul was concerned that, they, that this was that time that as they were shaken in their faith, as the affliction and the suffering was coming, that this was the time that the devil would sneak in because that's what he does. He loves it. It's one of his favorite tactics. And he says this again, he's just a very practical pastor. He says, and our labor might be in vain. He says, look, I, I, I spent not a lot of time, but I spent time planning that church and that faith community. It was gonna flourish for the gospel. And he very simply said, if you guys crumble now, our work was in vain. There's work to be done, Christian. It's a battleground. We know who wins the war, but we're still fighting battles, are we not? If you don't know who won the war, just look at Revelation, about chapter 19. The war's over. It's been signed, sealed, delivered, finished, victory, but we still have battles. There's ground to be gained, there's ground that's lost. Spiritual battles that take place. And Paul's a good pastor. He doesn't want to lose ground. Very practical. He doesn't want to lose ground. It's the heart of a pastor. He says that our labor might be in vain. Paul would consider that if this young faith community in Thessalonica crumbled, that their work would be in vain. But Paul didn't jump. Didn't, Paul didn't just hope he acted. He didn't just hope, man, I hope they get through it. Man, I'm just going to pray for him. 
seems like a tough time. I just really hope they get through it. But Jesus, would you just, would you comfort them? All right, I gotta go. What did he do? He took action. He went. He sent Timothy. He took action. In times of suffering, we need to be encouraged by fellow believers. Don't run from the faith community in times of suffering. Run toward it. Amen? Amen. But I love this. And it says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news. It's not what Paul thought. I love that. Super concerned. He's like, oh, Timothy came back. He's like, no, they're legit. We're good. Oh, okay. (laughs) It turns that fast. He's like, he brought us good news of your faith and love and that you have always had good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. The Thessalonians were doing great. And how were they doing great? How does he describe it? He says, in faith and in love. You want to know the marks of a healthy church? It's not the music. We're lucky we have good music. I've been to a lot of churches that don't so much. It's not the graphics. It's not the building. It's not the coffee, not the donuts. It's not even... Are people stumbling? Are people saying one thing and doing another? The mark of a good church is this, that people love God and they love others. They have a faith in God. They have a trust, though it can be shaken. They have a trust in God and they have a love for people. You're like, man, I just want to be more mature. Trust God more and love people more. Trust God more, love people more. We are saved individually, but we are not saved to individuality. We are called to a community. It's none of this, I'm not, I'm not, I'm spiritual. It's, I've got this personal relationship with Jesus. First of all, if you truly do have a personal relationship with Jesus, he will convict you that you want to be a part of the church. I don't believe anyone that says, I've got a personal relationship with Jesus and, and, and I don't do church. I, I honestly, in my heart, I, I, and I'm, I'm trying not to judge their salvation, but I honestly don't believe through anything in the scriptures, particularly Acts, that says the Holy Spirit puts people into church, that you just simply have this personal relationship with the active living king and he's keeping you from fellowship. People are like, what about all those missionaries live by themselves? You know what they want more than anything is to be with other Christians. It's not even a good example. If you're a Christian, you should be driven into community, not away from it. You're saved individually, but not saved to individuality. And he says, in faith and love, that's how you know a church is doing well. The faith in God and a love for people. And here's the, here's the twist. He says this, verse seven, check us out. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. Guess who was going through a really crappy time? Paul. That's the irony. He's right there. I'm so concerned about them. Like, Timothy, you got to go see how they are. Timothy goes back. He says, everything's awesome. Okay, cool. Man, it sucks here. It's terrible. He was at the church of Corinth, which he would later then write the Corinthians. But it says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 3. It says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul was having an awful time in Corinth. He was going to be beheaded at some point. He knew it. Only one apostle got away with their head still on their shoulders. He was having an awful time. And where was his concern with other people? We just lost our baby. Rob's like, are you serving anyone? Are you pressing into anyone through this? 
So know that, that even though you're in that time of struggle and I, I really want you to accept encouragement, I still want you to press out. Why? Because Paul was in a struggle and he was still pressing out. And he says like multiple times in the Bible, be like me. It's not heresy because he knew where he was leading. He says, act like me. We've seen that. So do what I do. Why? Because he was racing toward Jesus. Say, hey, follow, do what I do. Why? Because I'm headed toward him. Paul wasn't afraid to say, act like me. And he was pressing into the faith community, though he was in a, by all accounts, massive struggle himself. We're not off the hook. It all comes full circle. I'm telling you, when you serve in times of suffering, it's something, it's a different perspective. It's an eternal perspective that you've got a faith in that God. You've got a love for those people in that time when the world says, be about you. We say, no, I'm still gonna be about them. Then the world says that they might actually believe what they talk about. When you can lose a baby and then go out and serve people, you should be pissed. You should be yelling at God. What do you do? What do you do? No, I'm serving other people now. All right. Well, I don't, I don't believe it, but I, I think he actually believes this whole thing, this whole God thing. I think he actually thinks that he's hearing from an active. That's how the world begins to have to deal with Jesus now. So when they see people that press out in the time of, affliction. So he says, look, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord, for what thanks we can render to God for you, for all the joy which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly. Look, some rejoice in material prosperity of others, I hate the prosperity gospel. I've been to a prosperity gospel service. I've seen them pass the basket three times. I've seen them wheel a TV style camera out and say, we need another one of these. Who feels convicted? I've been there, it's awful. Didn't scratch the surface of the Bible. Begged for money three times. Multi-million dollar venue. Some people look at material prosperity and say, wow, that's good. Paul looks at the spiritual prosperity of other Christians and says, that's good. I don't care what your car is. I don't care what your house is. I don't care. And that's where I told you when we opened up this book, if you feel stale in your faith, like you've been in the same place over and over, this book presses you to step forward and move forward, progress in your faith, mature in your faith, not because you have to, but because by the grace of God, you want to. Stale faith says tough times. I stay here until it's not tough anymore. Maturity in faith says tough times. Who can I serve? Where can I go out? Tough times, I run toward church. I don't run away from it. I run toward pastoral leadership and I run away from it. Someone is hurting, I run toward them and I establish and encourage them. I don't hope they get through it. It's this maturing. Paul was excited that they were maturing spiritually, that they were prospering spiritually. He didn't care about their homes. First century, they didn't have cars. They didn't care what kind of sandals they had. He says, we pray exceedingly that we may say your face. See, Paul was encouraged from afar. He wished he was near. He sacrificed something in sending Timothy. A true love for God will cause you to desire fellowship with his people. I said this for a long time, way back when we did a series called Be the Church. 
Acts doesn't allow for you to say, I've got a personal relationship, I'm good, I don't need the church. Jesus came and loved and served the church. Therefore, if you're a Christian, if you're indwelled with his spirit via the Holy Spirit, you will have a desire to love and serve the church. And can I just say this? I almost forgot. Two weeks ago, my wife has been struggling to get volunteers in children's ministry. And, and I, I'm not gonna say anything bad about anyone else. Well, all I'm gonna do is say something good about us, about Sunday nights, part of this church. She, for weeks, for months, has not gotten anyone to be able to volunteer. I put out one announcement, seven of you, seven of you. My wife's blown away. Seven showed up. She's like, you can serve like once a month, like six of them. We're like, I'll just serve every week. Is that cool? Can I do that? That's what I'm excited about. And I was gone last week, so I didn't get a chance to say anything. And I, I was floored. I told her, kids broke me. Like, I want to cry more than I've ever wanted to cry in my life before. Like, and I'm like, that almost made me well up. Because that call to serve, when it was put out, you guys came through. So thank you for that. Personally, for my wife's sake, for children's ministry, to those of you, whether you're here tonight or not, thank you. Because a true love for God will cause desireship and ser- or desire fellowship and service in your faith. But, but, but Paul knew that they weren't perfect. Look how he ends. Look how he ends. America will tell you when you see something wrong from the church, run. When you see something wrong, leave. You do you. Paul says this. He ends with a, he ends this section with a with a um, a question. He says that we may see your face, verse ten. Still, that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. He was so pumped, but he knew there was holes. He knew there was holes in this church. You can make an entire career out of pointing out holes and bouncing. Consumer Christianity. I spoke with some friends right now that are looking for a church and they said, man, we just, we would go to one church and you'd see this, this, and this, and so we would move. We'd go one church, this, this, and this, so we had to move. And then they committed to husband. We were with them last night. Husband said, we, we have to go to a church. Let's just stay for three weeks. They stayed for three consecutive weeks. It changed everything about our perspective because we weren't just consuming. See a couple holes, leave. See a couple holes, leave. He knows that they're not perfect. But he's encouraged that they are being perfected. And it says, and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Then we'll read this. We'll just read through the last couple. It says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Paul said, man, I hope Jesus sends me your way and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Here's what covers all those holes, love. He says, look, I know that you have some things that are lacking in your faith. So may Jesus increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. We love because Jesus loved. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will care for people or you're following a false Jesus. He says, look, I know it's not perfect. You're not perfect. Paul said, I'm not perfect. Paul says he began his ministry as a sinner and he ended it as the chief of sinners. 
Did he get worse? No, chances are he actually got a lot better, but he got closer to Jesus, which made him feel all the more worse. Because suddenly the smaller sins are cosmic treason when you're closer to Jesus. Smaller sins. And so he implores us. He says, look, there's holes. There's things lacking. He says, but abound more in love. And we love because Jesus loves. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you loved us first. The Bible says that we, we love not because we first loved you, but because you first loved us. And so I just pray for, I pray for a push in my own life, in the hearts of those that are here, that we'd allow ourselves to be nudged, that we'd allow ourselves to be sanctified, that we'd allow ourselves to move in this process you have for us, knowing that there is no goal, there is but eternity, there is no goal, but there is a process. Would you change us, God? Would you, would you teach us that in our own time of suffering, we're called to serve? When we see others suffering, that we're called to serve and that we allow in our suffering to be served so that we can show a world that we really do believe what we say we believe. God, we trust you. Would you grow our trust in you? Would you grow our trust or our love for others inside and outside the church? May we not become a clique. May this be a place that people are equipped with the gospel to go out and live the gospel, not just know it. Would you move our feet now as you've stirred our hearts? Not out of a desire to be right before you, but because you said you're right before me. So Jesus, thank you that we've taken off our cloak of wickedness and we've put on your cloak of righteousness. And in that we're perfect. In you, we're perfect, Jesus, by your work, by your life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. You've overcome death. We have no fear. We reach out in love because you reached out to us in love. So Jesus, we love you, and now we're gonna sing to you. It's in your name we pray, amen.